Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This edition of the Major Spoilers podcast goes out to <gasps> Paul Wade, Sean Brown, Nathan Olson, Peter Walker, Michael Watanabe, Stephen Bauer, Kent Daring Highness, and Andres Cabezas. I think that's right. And David Marble. <laughs> Wait, what are we doing? We're doing a show? Oh, yes, and this one goes out to them. Spoilers theme song. The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Pod on on the air. The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. On the air. Pod pod podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Stephen. If you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, 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 the Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Welcome to Issue 504, the Major Spoilers Podcast. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Hey, thank you, everyone, for checking out our uh, master feed, the Major Spoilers Master Feed over there on iTunes. If you want to get all of the uh, shows that we currently put out, you'll want to subscribe to that feed. It's pushed us up to, like, number five on the What's Hot section uh, over in the, um, I forget which section. I think it appears in a variety of sections. It appears in other games. It appears in visual arts and literature, I think are the three places it appears in the what's hot. So uh, you'll be able to get all that, including the one uh, that appeared just yesterday, the dueling review that Mas- uh, Matthew and I did of Batgirl. I think that was Batgirl, wasn't it? Pretty Bat sure it was. Girl. Batgirl. Yeah, it was. I remember. Yep. So it was just a 24 Bat hours girl. ago. <laughs> um, so last week we had a bunch of discussion about Power Rangers and magic cards. And maybe you saw Rodrigo's video that we posted up on the... Major Spoilers website or over at our YouTube channel, Major Spoilers Video. Uh, we've also got a website, video.majorspoilers.com, where you can check all that stuff out if you haven't uh, checked that out already. And uh, you can see Rodrigo talk about uh, the new uh, Magic Card set and actually offers up some additional cards for you to check out to complement your, uh, what is it, a base deck? Rodrigo, is that what it is? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's what, um, a lot of people that are that have been around Magic for a while will call a precon, oh, pre-con which okay. stands for preconstructed deck. It is one of the um, you go in and you buy it, and it's a complete deck that you can slap down in front of your friends and play. Um, but uh, those decks are made to be starter decks in the same way that a house is meant, you know, to be a starter house. It, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's kind of a fixer upper sort of in a way to kind of get you to start. Um, changing up the cards in the deck and eventually in a way teach you how to build your own decks from scratch. Cool. Excellent. That's cool. As great as all the talk about power Rangers and magic was a lot of people were really upset with us last week Mm. because we had promised, we had promised we were going to talk about kill bill volume one and two. So this week we better get it out of the way right now. (laughs) Zach on film. Zach on film. 
Zach on film, Kill Bill volumes one and two. What is uh, what is Zach on film for those of you who are just downloading, listening for the first time? Uh, I teach a class uh, that Zach uh, teach a couple of classes, a lot of classes actually, probably more than I should be teaching. Um, Stephen teaches a thousand classes. I do teach a thousand Stephen classes. Has excess class. Yes, I do. <laughs> and I'm trying to have it rub off on young Zach because one of the things that surprised the hell out of me was I would make references to movies that I would figure everybody would have seen, especially somebody who would be into video or film or that kind of stuff. And so when I would ask the class, how many of you have seen Star Wars and none of them raise their hands or how many of you have seen um, Die Hard and nobody raises their hands or I say, how many of you have seen Ben Hur and nobody raises their hands? We got trouble <laughs> right here in River City. Uh, and so I came up with a list, uh, cobbled together a list of a bunch of films, and uh, we're starting to make young Zach review these films. Some of them he's already seen, or at least attempted to watch. Not yet. No, even watched. Kill Bill, oh, you yeah, said oh, that oh, you yeah, had yeah, him. Yeah, I have seen the first volume. Right, I have not seen, the second, seen the second volume. That's so, right. Uh, his task is to go in and watch these all-important films, come back and share his mm -hmm. thoughts on them. Uh, we sh lecture him a little bit on uh, what goes on with that. And then what he scream, learned from the experience. <laughs> Just yell. So, yell. Zach, tell us uh, quickly, what is the story of Kill Bill's volume one and two that we will now refer to as just Kill, Kill Bill? Bill? Awesome. So, Kill Bill, a uh, quick sy synopsis of the story is a, at this point, unnamed woman, just simply referred to as the bride, wakes up from a coma. Uh, she was pregnant. She is no longer she was attacked by assassins, and her wedding gets murdered Murdered up. She gets put into a coma, and then she's out for revenge. She wants to hunt down the people who essentially ruined her life. In a nutshell, kind of what Kill Bill is all about. Movie of revenge. And what happens at the end? Revenge. Revenge. Okay. <laughs> revenge! She, I, Matthew I mean, or, or she Rodrigo, gets, you want to add? She, you want a little bit? Add a little bit more to the stories there. Takes out her revenge on everyone. Yeah, um, we we do find out that she herself was a former assassin and also mm -hmm. uh, romantically involved with the eponymous Bill. Um, and uh, it is because she leaves the assassination squad and him that all of this happens. Um, as it turns out, and you know, spoiler alert, obviously he has. <laughs> Her daughter, dun, dun, dun. Is, you know, their ah. daughter, his, his daughter as well. And so um, around the final boss fight, she has to tread very lightly. <laughs> yes. So also providing, as I often do, the historical perspective, um, Quentin Tarantino loves some. Uh, hold, 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 hold yeah. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Because <laughs> this is the part where we get a question, Zach, on stuff. Cool. Right. So what influences Quentin Tarantino? In this movie? Yes. What What are the things that influence Quentin Tarantino as you watch his other films, whether it be Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction or, in this case, Kill Bill? Um, There's a lot of influences that are pushed into this film, smacked into this film, hit you over the head yeah. with this film. Um, other previous movies of different airing genres. Of this what one, are the genres in this one? This one being <laughs> of kung fu nature. Okay. What kind of kung fu nature? Are we talking about like uh, Double Dragon starring uh, what are those two brothers that Scott were in that? Wolf. Scott Wolf? 
Amazing. Is that what kind of martial arts films you're talking about? Um, Who is now the? New I'm going to take a guess and say no. He doesn't know that. I'm going to say I'm going to say no. I'm going to go with guess no. Okay, so good guess. When yes. you have two answers, you have a 50 percent chance of being yeah, right. Maybe. But in your correct answer, you also prove that you have failed. Zach. Awesome. So, when Matthew and I were growing up, now granted, a lot of these movies had come out years before, sometimes decades before. It's not before. like we ever really grew up. No, 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 no. I had uh, one of co-worker came in today and say with uh, one of our uh, a student worker and introducing me to her for the first time, she's like, see all these toys on Steven's desk? He's just one big kid. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Get out of my office. Um, <laughs> but uh, oh. during the, the, the 60s and the 70s, there was this big resurgence of how can we make money off of different cultures and um, and different things. And so we had the rise of the black exploitation film. And then we also had the rise of the martial arts films, uh, the martial arts films being discovered in large part due to Bruce Lee, uh, who was very big in the day. And so there was a huge influx. Ah, Matthew, what did you say from about 68 to about 78? Well, are we talking just about the Hong Kong martial? Yeah, arts we're talking about the Hong Kong martial the arts, whole... the Hong Kong martial arts films, the the stuff that all the stuff is is based yeah, off yeah, of. You know, yeah. when you look at uh, Lady Snowblood, yeah, if you want to call them the Chopsaki movies, yeah, the Lady Snowblood, which is what the first volume of Kill Bill is really mirrored I, off of. I'd say seventy ish, because before that, you're still in the you know the previous kind of a generation, seventy to seventy seven, seventy nine in that neighborhood, okay. and then. Uh, yeah, I would say probably I mean, about the time we was born. Like this that. was like the big thing to go see in the theaters. Now, when Matthew and I were old enough to start watching this stuff, seven, eight, nine, it was starting to move out of that time period, mm -hmm. but, um, moving on to TV. And so if you were watching the right channel at the right time, or if you had HBO at a young age, these movies filled the channels in the late and wee hours of the night after, uh, after the Skinamax stuff was yeah. over. You got to see all of this stuff with Sonny Chiba and um, yeah. all these great martial arts guys uh, that play out in this film. You must have had better cable because all I got was like Sugar Hill and her zombie hitman and <laughs> five deadly venoms. What was it? What was it? Oh, uh, you know, the story of O. Oh, what was that one that they she had like a Oh Emmanuel? That's what Rick they ran. Yo. No, um, Emmanuel. The stories oh, that God, they always no, ran all no. the time. <laughs> Emmanuel in space was good though. Yeah, there you go. But so Quentin Tarantino. A little bit older than us, but really dug on all this stuff as a kid. And it's these influences that influenced how his directorial style, his, the shots that he's picking, and this then influences his work. And when it comes to Kill Bill, it's almost a love letter back to, this is the stuff that influenced me, kids. Oh, yeah. So, I don't know. Have you ever watched any of these? Have you ever watched... Uh, House of Flying Daggers or the Flying Guillotine or anything like that. I haven't. Okay, so you need to you need to try and watch some of this stuff. It's not all on Netflix. Um, some of it may be. Um, certainly, the biggest influence in this piece is Bruce Lee's um, yellow jumpsuit, which she wears throughout the first film. Oh yeah, yeah. And that's yeah. what Matthew was getting to. Matthew, go ahead and jump in with some Bruce Lee uh, lecturing to young Zach. Well, the thing about that jumpsuit that's fascinating is it's. It's kind of the iconic look. It's either that or shirtless Bruce Lee. Mm -hmm. He wore it for like 17 minutes in A Game of Death. And, you know, then 
you know, he died soon after during mm-hmm. the filming of that. So it was never something that came up again. But that yellow jumpsuit is the iconic, I'm dressed like Bruce Lee now kind of thing, which I think is fascinating. And I'm going to, and every time you see you Bruce Lee, in my he kicks game. ass. Yeah. So mm. you know that when you see her wearing that yellow <laughs> jumpsuit, she's going to kick a lot of ass. Yeah. And so one of the other things that, and Rodrigo jump in on this too, the, the other thing that I think um, people criticize Quentin Tarantino for is a lot of over-the-top violence and a lot of over-the-top language. But again, as far as, you know, one of the greatest, I think still is one of the greatest fight scenes of all time is the um, House of the Blue Lotus when she's fighting the crazy Crazy 88s is just so well done. And there's a lot of dismemberment. There's a lot of blood flying. There's a lot of stuff, but it is choreographed perfectly. Mm Rodrigo, talk a little bit about the uh, the the violence and blood and language, and and why is it why is it criticized so much? Well, it's definitely criticized because it's not common and it's really over the top. You know, a, a lot of the time in movies, they don't show you that stuff. Even if somebody gets decapitated or dismembered or disemboweled right. or any other dis kind of thing, um, some part of their body is removed from the rest of their body. Usually, it's done off camera. Which can actually be even more traumatizing, depending on how uh, active your imagination is. But in Kill Bill, most of it is done right in front of you. Um, and that, the language, um, and, and I'll get to a little bit more of that here in a second. But both of those things, I think in a lot of ways are because Kill Bill is in fact a love letter, not just to the 70s and and, and late 60s, Um as far as film, but also a love letter to the 70s and early 60s as far as Quentin Tarantino's childhood. Mm -hmm. And that ridiculous, over-the-top violence and language and really kind of weird, stunted wordplay that the characters have with each other um, just seems like the sort of thing that a teenage boy would come up with and be like really way the crap into you know, the, a lot of the mainstream, quote unquote, mainstream movies of that time period. Yeah, sure. You'd see some nudity, maybe see some violence, maybe hear some language uh, here and there. But really, the exploitation type films are the ones where it went over the top because you were trying to bring in audiences who weren't into that mainstream. Uh, and so that was kind of part of the appeal as well in that time. And I remember when Kill Bill and, came out, people were just flipping out over how dare he do this. And people are quick to forget that, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, this is what you were using to draw people into a movie. Right. Absolutely. You know, with the with the advent of the rating system for movies, mm-hmm. a lot of that stuff got very seriously suppressed um, because now there was a body that was looking at movies and saying, oh, you can do this or you can't do this. Um, so people, like like you said, Stephen, people kind of forgot that this stuff used to happen in movies mm-hmm. all the time. You know, if you look at the um, the genesis of the zombie movie as a genre, those things are violent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Violent movies. Yeah. Uh, so going back to rating system, just to give you a frame of reference, uh, Midnight Cowboy, you've ever seen that? No, I've heard of it. With Dustin Hoffman Dustin in it? Hoffman, okay. Right. Uh, rated X. It had an X rating, meaning that really that would be the equivalent of today's hard R or NC to 17. 
Uh, but it's the only X-rated film ever to win an Oscar for its work. Well, it's just a few years later that the ratings board changed and you never would have an X-rated movie ever be considered for an Oscar again. So yeah, in this time period that we're talking about, there's a lot of fluctuation going on in the rating system, the movie industry, and trying to find an audience that's trying to really find themselves. I mean, think of the time period that is going on. We have people who are coming back from Vietnam or embroiled in Vietnam, people against the war, people for the war. There was no national identity. People were, you know, fighting amongst each other. You're going through continued um, issues over race uh, and sex. Uh, and so it's kind of ripe for the picking to do all this stuff that you normally wouldn't do in a more controlled environment. Um, and so, yeah, as Rodrigo said, this is that love letter to your childhood. Uh, and we've talked before about the, our greatest movies that influenced us. Uh, and we've talked about, and it seems to be that the movies that have the greatest impact on us fall between certain years of our lives. And I can imagine that that, and I, again, I don't want to put in uh, words into, uh, Tarantino's mouth, but I can imagine that it is that adolescence that mm -hmm. stuck into his mind. Matthew? No, I think there's a definite point there. Oh, I thought you were going to jump in. I but thought you were getting ready to go ahead. No, I was coughing. Oh, okay. What is more importantly? <laughs> I don't know. You said to I think when you break it down, though, if you look at what this movie kind of represents, it is, I think, more graphic than the average grindhouse crap movie, the average kung fu movie of our of our youth or of the era where, you know, Tarantino is being influenced. But it's also done in a way that it, it kind of is trying to emulate that that here's a quick movie that we made for $47,000. Let's make some money off of it. And it's doing it with great care and precision and craftsmanship to the point where they're more than just emulating. Here's a cool fight scene that I saw. He's actually putting a lot of effort into trying to replicate the entire viewing experience that he grew up with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as someone who, when I say I read the original issues, Yes, it's me being a hipster doofus, but it's also the original issue experience, the original movie experience is separate and distinct of a release or a trade paperback or a DVD. And Tarantino is trying really hard to not only give you a movie that's fun to watch, but a movie that replicates the things that he loved about the experience when he was younger, right down to, you know, the the missing reels and the weird kind of stuff and the violence that may be toned up quite a bit. The sexuality being toned up from the, you know, the girls with guns, angel, killer, hooker, you know, genre of the 70s. But it's all meant to be, it's what he loved about movies. The thing about those movies, Oh, Matthew, you're breaking up. Are you, are you doing a bunch of downloads in the background? Because you're really breaking up. No. No. Okay. Is, is your wife doing a bunch of downloads in the background? <laughs> No. Okay, so try again in the last uh, sentence or two that you were getting to, because you were really broken up, and I want to make sure that everybody hears us, hears you. Uh, and that's how I saved Christmas. Am I back? Yeah, it sounds like it. Okay. I think he's trying to uh, 
he's trying to really show people things about those movies that a lot of people say have no value and to show why he believes that there is a value in something, you know, really likable. There's an experience that's no longer had in the movies. And, you know, even this isn't going to be the same. Try and replicate it for us. And that's kind of cool. So by the time Kill Bill came out in 2003, uh, the first volume, um, I'm going to guess Rodrigo and Matthew and I had already been exposed to a lot of Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I remember now, I never saw Reservoir Dogs in the theater. Saw it on videotapes soon after Pulp Fiction came out. Uh, but my first experience with Quentin Tarantino was Pulp Fiction. And maybe for a lot of people, their first encounter with Quentin Tarantino was Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot of violence, a lot of uh, language in it, uh, a lot of big takes, long takes in it. Um, and Quentin Tarantino then ends up influencing a whole generation of people who want to emulate that Tarantino style. Uh, even down to what I mentioned a couple of weeks ago with the man with the iron fists, uh, the RZA mm-hmm. movie that is out now. And I, I guess there is an unrated version out on Blu-ray. I said, I was just going to buy stuff in this digital form, but I think I really want to go get that unrated version. Mm. So even RZA is influenced by Quentin Tarantino even down, I mean, when you watch that, have you gotten a chance to watch I it yet? Watched it yet no. When you watch this, you'll notice that, oh, this looks like a Tarantino joint. This looks mm-hmm. like, oh, where that guy got cut off or this guy gets the losing this arm and the blood's flying. You know, you could say, oh, yes, that's a, a throwback to the 70s uh, kung fu movies. But even down to the type of music that Rizzi uses in The Man with the Iron Fist is lifted almost right out of a, a Quentin Tarantino hymn book where you've got the electric guitar, uh, surf music. You've got the, uh, the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, what's yep. his name? Um, what's the, what's that composer's name? Morricone. Uh, Mar- Morricone's no, music director. No, no, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. In- Ineo, yeah. Ineo Morricone is the, uh, is, is the music, you know, that big yeah. sprawling stuff that right. fall, f- flows mm-hmm. throughout and Quentin Tarantino uses a lot of well, that into his movies because that influenced him. The spaghetti westerns influenced him, right, and he's putting all that in there. Now, granted, uh, Man with the Iron Fist is executive produced by Tarantino, right. but you can even see that this influence is spilling over into other directors, uh, other creative types. Rodrigo, what were you going to say? Yeah, and that's and that's one thing that I uh, that I was looking for the right moment to bring up, and this looks like the perfect time. But there is really a, a third, very strong, although not as obvious influence to kill to the Kill Bill movies, and that is spaghetti westerns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there is just the long shots of people looking at each other with just right. soaring <laughs> trumpet music in the background. Yeah, I love that, that stuff. That is a spaghetti western. Right? Now, absolutely, and it's it's fantastic. Now I don't know how many spaghetti westerns you've seen. Have you watched, I know in class when we were talking about editing, I showed the uh, final sequence from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, Mm -hmm. where it is those shots of people back and forth and the trumpets blaring and everything. Have you watched that entire film? Not The Good, I've seen other westerns, but not Good, Bad, and Ugly. Have you seen um, Fistful of Dollars or For a Few Dollars More? No. Okay. So we're going to have to assign some spaghetti westerns to to your lineup. In fact, next week, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Cool. Okay. Um, because yeah, that does have an impact in, in the mm-hmm. storytelling, especially when like Rodrigo, where you see these extreme close ups, 
to where, again, we don't see if you go back and you look at anything but the good, the bad and the ugly, you don't see close ups that are just the eyes filling the entire frame. And it's magical. And there's something wonderful about that. And it's like, how can I incorporate this into my work? Oh, here is the bride facing off with Black Mamba. And we're going to do this cutaway back and forth between the two. No, she's a Black Mamba. No, well, who's uh, Daryl Hannah's uh, character? California water snake or something okay. like that. Like oh, she has a really stupid. Oh yeah. Um. Oh, you got to keep going. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But you know, you you see those sequences in there, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I heard somebody else talking about Kill Bill not too long ago, and I forget where I heard it. Maybe it was uh, Kevin Smith or somebody talking about it. But they were talking about how Kill Bill Volume One is essentially the um the story. That's lifted right from Lady Snowblood, the Japanese movie. And it's all about revenge and violence. But then you get to Kill Bill Volume 2, and there's not so much blood and guts and violence, mm-hmm. and it turns more into almost a family oh, yeah. affair, oh, a yeah. family film. There's definitely a shift of tone when you when you finish uh-huh. Kill Bill Volume 1, because that's pretty much the last part of that film is the Crazy 8-8 battle. Right. That's pretty much the last big part of Kill Bill Volume 1. And then Volume 2, not... Not there's a couple scenes of violence, but they're significantly shorter mm-hmm. and n- not as intense. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, story and uh, it, I if, I think it feels more personal to um, Uma Thurman's character, the bride, mm-hmm. than the first one seems more like I'm just gonna kill a bunch of people. The second the second part seems more personal on why she would ever do all the killing she did in the first one. Mm-hmm. So re-examination of the character. Right, 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 right. Okay. So, would you rather watch that out all as one giant movie? Or do you need, think that they need to be split up into the two parts? I've been thinking about this, and I think I would, I would like to watch them all in one movie the way that he would have put it together, not in one, in on one movie. Cause in, if you watch them separately, there's like an intro to volume two where she explains essentially everything she did in volume one. And if you cut that out and you go straight from, uh, Bill saying, does she know her child's still alive to the church scene that begins volume two mm-hmm. and you just put those together, then Totally. Watch him all in one sitting. There is a version called Kill Bill, The Whole Bloody Affair, which was the um, version that was released in uh, Cannes in 2003. Mm-hmm. Supposed to be released in 2008 or 2009. It's never been released on, on DVD yet, but it has been shown in theaters at least once. Really? Uh, supposed to, supposedly in the way that Tarantino originally mm-hmm, intended mm-hmm. it to be. So um, if somebody has it out there. Because there's some extended scenes that I don't even know if they're oh, on the really? DVDs. Um, might be worth checking out. Hmm. So now the big question, young Zach. Is there anything in this film or are there any things in this film or films mm-hmm. that now influence you and make you a better shooter, editor, photographer, okay. connoisseur of music? Oh, most certainly. One thing that... I had been thinking about in times of just great pondering as I drive to work was the, how people can extend time through editing mm-hmm. and cause editing compressing time, it seems pretty natural to do. Uh, 
having it in real time, obviously pretty easy to do, but I feel I've always been wondering about the extenuation in time. How do you make time feel longer than it really is on screen? Mm-hmm. And that scene where uh, the bride is in the bathroom waiting on her pregnancy test. Mm-hmm. I felt like that scene took forever. And it was like, I thought that was so wonderful done with the mute, the clock ticking and the long shots. Wonderful. The editing in this film is seriously, it's super top notch through the, however many different aspects of editing you have to go through. Cause conversation scenes are still completely engaging. That bathroom scene is amazing. The church, the church scene to begin volume two is one of the most tense scenes that I've ever seen because you know everyone's about ready to die and you're mm-hmm. just waiting for that moment to come. And that that scene is phenomenal. Editing, great. Uh, being able, I don't know, I would say almost to take a, take a risk in creativity the way that Quentin does by jumping back and forth between color and black and white at certain instances that could, that feel completely natural mm-hmm. changing uh oh was it oh towards the beginning of volume 1 when the police officer who i can't remember his name anyways comes up and he has the sunglasses on and oh, everything's yeah. tinted yellow and mm-hmm. takes them off mm-hmm. and it's just little things like that mm-hmm. that what aren't normally done in film but seem completely natural the way that he's able to pull them off. So, you know, and this is one of the things that uh, people often are surprised in. Uh, you know, it's a lot of people will assume that it's the director telling the editor, this is what you need to do. Oh, yeah. Right. And one of the great things about Tarantino uh, was his long relationship with Sally Menke, who was the uh, was his editor. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a great documentary called shoot cut by cut something like that it's a history of uh, editing in uh in cinema and he's going on and talking about Sally and how she's older she created this motherly feeling she would coax him and and bring on things i think we've watched that yeah, we before yeah we watched that in class and you know she has this huge grasp of what makes a tight edit mm-hmm. so when you're watching kill bill that's all her yeah, editing yeah, yeah. that stuff together and convincing tarantino that you know, this shorter cut is going to work here or this way to edit it is going to work. And there's been some criticism. Um, what was the film that he just came out with? Uh, Django Unchained. Django Unchained. That a lot of people criticize that it was way too long. And it's because Sally Minke has passed away mm-hmm. that he doesn't have that person there to confine that three and a half hour movie down to a two and a half hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the relationship between the director and the editor is still very, very important and still very, very special. And it's not just one person, right. person doing that. And I think a lot of people still forget that, right, Rodrigo? I mean, people just think that the director is the one that's doing all the editing or that there's not that relationship. People don't recognize that relationship between the director and the editor. Oh, absolutely. I mean, people always just assume that the most famous person tied to a uh, project had all all of the input. Right. Right. At all. So, like, if somebody didn't like, I don't know, Goodwill Hunting, they're like Matt Damon. <laughs> but you know, obviously, there's a lot of people who who go into all of this stuff. And yeah, I mean, a good editor can save a project. A good editor, a bad editor, can ruin a project. Mm. Um, and that goes for everything: lighting, sound design, any given thing can just propel something to like a sublime experience or 
you know, take a very good piece and lower it in quality significantly. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. Anybody else want to add anything to our discussion of Kill Bill? Does it? I got a. I got a. I got a. I got a Kill Bill story. Okay. Uh, when I went to see this is this is kind of a testament to Quentin Tarantino's uh, filmmaking style. When I went to see Kill Bill, Volume One, I think um, the projector bulb uh, burnt out mm. right at the end of a scene. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So we could hear the the audio still going, but we couldn't see what was happening, and nobody knew if that was supposed to be happening. Yeah, we that probably right. we probably went through almost an entire scene before somebody finally was like, "Wait a minute, this is probably not supposed to be this way." Because we were like, "Okay, any moment now, like things are gonna like come back up or whatever," and then we were like, "Oh yeah, that was such a good idea." And blah blah. blah. It's like no. No, the bulb just burnt out. But honestly, this movie was so unpredictable up to that point that we just had no idea if that was going to happen. And that is part of that is the techniques that he was using, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, because after he pulls the rug out from under you with cinematography and editing, like after a while, you don't know what to expect, even from the like formal aspects of the movie. Matthew, did Zach pass this week? Well, you're probably going to yell at me, but I've never seen all of Kill Bill. What? Hmm? Matthew, part of the assignments that we make to Zach is also so that we watch those films and are familiar with the discussion matter. (laughs) No, really, seriously, have you at least watched volume one? Has that been made? (laughs) Have you you watched at least volume one? I watched part of it. I stopped watching when she cut out the one-eyed girl's one eye. That's Where's pretty that? late. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's volume that's two. Like in, that's volume two. That's volume two. Okay, so I have seen, I've seen from the point where she's in black and white talking about Bill is an evil Bill, and I did all this stuff up to the point where she cuts out Daryl Hannah's eye. H- have you so seen? I have seen a majority of volume two. Have you ever seen volume one? Not to my knowledge, but so he's fine. He's only seen volume two. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You really need to watch volume one. I think you'd have a, uh, like it much better. Yeah, dude. I think you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, 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 totally. I liked Grindhouse, and people you'll, say you'll Grindhouse like, is the worst thing Tarantino's ever done. It's not the worst thing, but considering that it was the follow-up to Kill Bill, I can see where a lot of people's expectations uh, yeah, I think were really crushed. Expectations were really high, yeah. yeah. Well, and Death Proof is a very flawed movie, but it's part of it is flawed on purpose. Right, yeah. exactly. Again, it's that I'm trying to give you an experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And they cut important parts out of the movie to give you the experience of watching a, 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 a grindhouse, movie. A grindhouse movie, so. yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you, if you, if you were to watch, if you were to watch Reservoir Dogs, followed by Death Proof, you would see more of what people know about Tarantino's work style between those two films. The long takes, the long discussion, even to an extent Pulp Fiction, I guess. You know, the whole scene in the cars with uh, with Travolta and um, um, Samuel L. Jackson, or even in the restaurant, where it's just these long, long takes of just pure memorizing lines and just going with those lines that uh that he is known for so well zach i think you passed this week dirty sweet yeah 
Uh, but next week, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Good, the bad, and the ugly. You're gonna have to set aside some time because this is a long, long film. Oh yes, and it's gonna get a little boring. Hey, is the Magnificent oh, Seven on the list? Yes, it is. Good. Yeah. Wake yep. me when we get to Magnificent Seven. <laughs> well, that, that may be the one we do <laughs> I love after me that. Some Robert Vaughn. Let me see where we're at here. Well, you know, we could go. We could go a bunch of different directions because if we're if we're in the same area, you know, we got Kill Kill Bill Volume One and Two, and we're doing Spaghetti Western with um, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. We could then swing that around with Enter the Dragon, and get some uh, Japanese movies in there, and then jump over to. Have you watched Pulp Fiction? Not a Japanese movie. Um. No, but I actually own tune copies of it, but I just haven't watched it yet. Okay. So the next ones that we, we're going to have lined up people. Good, the bad, and the ugly. Then yes. Enter the Dragon. Let me write this down here. Okay. Good, the bad, and the ugly. So where's it at? Good, the bad, and the ugly. One. Enter the Dragon. Two. Swing it over to... Pulp Fiction on three, and then wrap it up with uh, Magnificent Seven there on four. So I'm there you have go. have to and borrow Enter the Dragon from someone because it's been like a decade since I saw okay. it. Okay, I think I've got it somewhere. And I want to I make it 100% clear that Enter the Dragon is not a Japanese movie. No, 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 it's not. It is a movie made by a Chinese man in Hong Kong. Right. And there is a difference. Yes. Um, but it's got Kung Fu and it's got Bruce Lee and that's all you need to know. So there you go. <laughs> and that concludes another episode of Zach on Film. He the big one. on Film. All right. Now back to your normal uh, goofiness that you expect from us. Um, a lot of people. And that's how I save Christmas. <laughs> a lot of people are up in arms over the announcement that Orson Scott Card is writing um the online adventures of Superman, uh, the comic book distributed in a digital format initially, and then, um, and then it'll be released on print at some point in the future. Rodrigo, give us a breakdown of the big controversy going on here. Uh, the big, uh, controversy going on here is that, uh, famed sci-fi writer, Orson Scott Card, I believe best known for Ender's game. Um, and all of those uh, sequels and and all those sequels and prequels if you're into it um, is also a um, big uh, what what is the actual official name Uh, pro-traditional family advocate uh, making him squarely an anti-gay advocate right Um, and Having a lot of uh, gay and gay ally readers, um, DC is catching some flack for that because they are essentially hiring a writer who has made it very public that he doesn't think that gay people should be able to get married, etc. He contributes, uh, supposedly contributes a big chunk of money to um, and to pro-traditional marriage uh, organizations as well. Um, and may actually be like in the leadership of at least one of them. Okay, so the question Does that be- about cover it. Yeah, I think so. I think that you know Mostly, yeah. he's. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say homophobic, right? Um, yeah. And I guess the concern is, and I've not. I mean, the only Orson Scott card stuff that I've read is the Marvel one or two issues of the Marvel adaptation of Ender's Game. 
but I'll admit I've never really read any of his stuff that I know of. Um, but is but is Ender's Game I've full read of, all of the Ender's Game novels? Is it is it full of pro family, pro life, pro or uh, anti? No, I read it in high not school. Not exactly. And I Ender's don't Game remember. is kind of. I don't think so. Yeah, Ender's Game is kind of um, vaguely post-apocalyptic, vaguely cyberpunky kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't. It doesn't necessarily for me. It, its weaknesses are in violence sure and the mass genocide are in well yeah it's it's in kind of almost uh if you had to say that there's a weakness to the enders game series i think that that weakness is probably going to be the glorification of uh violence and uh i don't want to say military but at least a martial expectation of the world and i think that that that's something that you can level at a lot of people Ender's Game, I, to my knowledge, I don't recall there ever being any real issues of sexuality. Um, it, at least, you know, the last time, God, has probably been 10 years since I finished reading. Whenever the last book came out, I actually read that one live. You read it live? Maybe it was, yeah. On the as as, 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 Card was as, writing. as the pages were coming <laughs> off the press, <laughs> he can read them live. Okay. Yes. Yeah, it was, so, it was pretty awesome. And again trying to be sensitive but is this a big deal that he's writing i mean do we care should we care should we be making a big deal of this with him writing this superman book rodrigo uh, a, a a fair and complex question yes i know um a lot of a lot of people feel that the best way to go about things like this is that if somebody stands for something that you are against, um, your best recourse to show whoever's employing this person that you are not happy with that is to boycott their work. Now, that is true. If you don't like somebody and enough people don't like them and they start not buying the thing that they are selling, that does send a clear message to the publishers. So if you don't like Orson Scott Card, the best thing you can do is A, tell DC about it, and B, not buy the book that he's tied to. Um, now, that is from an economical and practical standpoint. Sure. That's a, from, a pro, from a protest standpoint. Right, absolutely. Um, from an artistic standpoint and from a um, kind of a textual standpoint, um, I don't care. And... The main reason why I don't care is because I personally feel, and I think there's a fair amount of people out there who feel the same way, that the writer's personal views, as long as they don't show up in the story, don't actually matter as far as the actual text. Okay. That goes for everything. That goes for books, for poetry, for music, theater, whatever. Good. Put a pin in that because I want to come back around to you, Rodrigo, with a comment, a comment that you were putting on Tumblr uh, earlier in the week, or maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. We'll come back around to this. Uh, Matthew, to you, same kind of question. Mm. Yeah, well, here's the thing. My opinion of whether someone has a reason to be offended is not going to stop them from being offended. People are clearly upset about Oh, sure, this. sure. And I think that with with good reason, and from a frame of reference, I understand why you would want to say this is a problem. Because we're not talking just about someone who 
opposes gay marriage. This is someone who has publicly stated that homosexuality is uh, deviant and uh, it's a, a mental illness and that homosexuality is the same as paraphilia and things that are flat out illegal, immoral and wrong, even, you know, to people who would agree or would support a homosexual lifestyle. So it's more than just, oh, well, he said gay marriage, it's bad. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's that he has actively stated a lot of vitriolic and, you know, offensive things. And to me, I think it falls on the side of the same discussion we had about misogyny and Dave Sim. I was going to come up with that with can specifically you, with you. Yeah. Yeah. Can you read Cerebus knowing that Dave Sim holds these beliefs, knowing that, you know, they are there and that it's going to show up in the story? To me, I believe that those misogynistic viewpoints are wildly skewed from the world that I understand. So when I read Cerebus, I read parts of it with a grain of salt. Now, here's the thing that we also have to take into account. Dave Sim was writing Cerebus, a, a character who he created. Mm -hmm. Cerebus is not... It's not icon. Superman, sure. Cerebus is not about belonging. Cerebus is not about saving everyone. And Superman is. Superman is a huge 80-year-old iconic character who's all about truth, justice, and the American way. So if you take something and if you presume that truth and justice means the same thing to me as it does to Orson Scott Card, as it does to someone who's protesting Orson Scott Card writing Superman, clearly there's some dissonance there. There's a, there's a dichotomy of what you expect. And so what the, I think what part of it is about is not so much that DC is hiring this, this writer with an offensive or inflammatory viewpoint. It's that Superman as a character is about the ultimate outsider assimilating. Superman is the, you know, the living melting pot, the man sure. from another planet who comes to this world and protects people. So people have deep emotional resonances. Of people course. have an association with Superman. I mean, we had the same problem with, uh, well, not the same problem, but we had a similar but less angry dissonance when um j michael straczynski wrote the grounded arc of superman a couple of years ago where superman walked across america and revoked mm -hmm. his american citizenship mm -hmm. i mean people were people were mad yes that this was happening but it was because it was superman that it blew up and that's part of the problem here if orson scott card were writing you know the creeper i don't think people would would fly off the handle Orson Scott Card wrote Iron Man four or five years ago, Ultimate Iron Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. I and I don't recall anyone really flying off the handle about that. So I think Superman being the character written about is a large part of the issue here. Is it? Is it that or is it that someone is finally publicizing his donations, his previous, uh, you know, speaking, et cetera? Because, again... I think that has, with I think with Cerebus, with Cerebus, you were, you know, a bunch of issues in before it really became clear that Sims had these very misogynistic ideals. But in those, you know, those first, I don't know what it, what uh, chapter or book you got up to before it really started to kind of leak in here and there. But 186. Is that what it is? I'm on Wikipedia. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that was issue 186. Um, but, you know, it wasn't That's until the then... That it changed. I don't know how long uh, Orson Scott Card's been hired to write the uh, this digital Superman stuff. I 
think it's at most two two issues. So, yeah, you know, I doubt, you know, I can't say this for sure, but I doubt that he's going to go in and totally revise Superman. Um, Do I agree with his viewpoints? Oh, heck no. Do I believe that he has a right to try to make a living in telling stories? Sure. And I guess kind of going along with Rodrigo, as long as he's not bringing his personal bias or his personal opinion into shaping this character, which, as you, Matthew, said, is what people are are identifying with the most, the character and Part of the and, issue, yeah. and his thing. I, you know, I kind of have to say that, you know, as long as he's not using it as a platform to voice his opinion or voice his agenda, I don't really have a problem with it, unfortunately. Right. And and I guess it's. But then there's also the fact that none of us. Right. Are specifically targeted by his right. views. Right. right. And that's true, Where too. We, we, we are all heterosexual white males. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the white male part really doesn't have anything to do with it. And I guess, you know, technically, when you look at it. Also, I'm not white. <laughs> really? I, I, I don't know what white means. Um, but in any case, it, really, when you look at it, I think that being, being emotionally tied to this, being part of the group, that he oh, is actually sure. speaking against mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. would change my opinion of it. And I think if they, you know, if for instance, he were saying, uh, I'm, I'm gonna go there. If he were saying that he hated the J word of a group, which I might belong to, I definitely think that it might be a different issue. And more importantly, I think that when you break it down, saying that, Orson Scott Card shouldn't write Superman. I don't want Orson Scott Card writing Superman. DC, don't let Orson Scott Card write Superman. If you state any of those things, you are not necessarily saying Orson Scott Card does not have a right to make money as a writer. You're not saying Orson Scott Card should not be allowed to write. What, you know, what I believe the protests are about are should this company necessarily have someone with these inflammatory viewpoints writing this particular character it, i mean it's a sure. it's a very nuanced and it's a very yeah, yeah. difficult issue to right. address but again i guess could you make the same argument with the ender's game movie that's being made or should people be saying how dare you whoever it is warner brothers maybe people are people are are they saying yeah, that they? Are how saying dare you make that movie? Are, yes oh. yeah they're they're uh they're against the movie being made. They are bashing Harrison Ford for being tied to the project. Mm. They're bashing, you know, everybody involved. Yeah. I mean, yeah. People, you know, some people, now obviously people that feel strongly about this feel uniformly strongly about this. And yeah, I mean, they are catching some flack. Okay. All right. Uh, cool. I had never heard any of that, but I've, it's happening. Zach, do you have an opinion on this? Um, I think I, I go along the same thing that you and Rodrigo have, uh, have already laid out that as long as his viewpoints that I would say a lot of people don't agree with, obviously don't start funneling their way into shaping the way that Superman acts within his world. Then yeah, it's not something that's going to deter me away from his work or, but But, I I can't imagine a situation where he could possibly get Superman to do any of those things and get it past anyone at DC editorial. Sure. Let me just make a, just a, well, 
<laughs> I don't think Superman would would be able to write a they'd be able to write a Superman story where he chose either side. Right, right. Of an argument, not about not not right now, definitely. No, no, no. 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 Certainly not. And, I mean, that's not that's not what the character is about. Mm-hmm. Putting Superman in that situation would be doing a disservice a to Superman, but b to mm-hmm. readers who actually came in to read a comic book. Right, right. That's not what Superman stories are necessarily going to be about. Superman taking a side in a discussion like that, either side, for whatever reason, I think would be problematic from a storytelling viewpoint and would probably be, you know, a worse idea than not addressing it at all. Definitely economically. Oh, yeah. There's a number of ways that you could totally make that story go into the toilet very quick. Oh, yeah. Um, But what this... Writing it. Well, yeah, (laughs) that could be one. Um, one of the things though, that this conversation, uh, brought up though, is a conversation that I was privy to a conversation with two people last night. And then Rodrigo was going through your, um, magic turtle Tumblr page, um, Uh a couple of days ago. And this, uh, conversation has come up multiple times of separating the artist from the art. And there's a big school of thought on. You don't know what the writer is intending. You have no idea what they meant, what the filmmaker meant when they shot that shot. You don't know. And so disregard all of that stuff. Right, Rodrigo? Is that essentially it? That. Yeah, um, it's called, uh, I believe in academic circles, it's called the fallacy of authorial intent. Yeah. Um, and actually, uh, Dr. Peter Coogan has come on the show and, and referenced it and, and has talked about it before. We mm-hmm. should probably get him in here to talk I about it. I am trying. I was trying to get him on two weeks ago, but we have been having some email, uh, uh, misses time issues. Yeah. But yeah. He's coming back. Yeah, Don't no, worry. That, he's that coming happens. back. He's a busy guy. Yeah. Awesome. No, he's great. Uh, but yeah, I mean, basically what it comes down to is because you can never truly know what someone else intended there is no point in even caring about the intention of the writer, right? Um, or the and artist. that goes for everything. Yeah, so, so same way hear, with Quentin yeah, Tarantino discussion we just had. If you hear a song, right, if you hear a song and you are like, man, this song is awesome because it reminds me of all of the good times that I've had with my girlfriend and stuff. And then later on, somebody tells you, well, actually, that song is like about a dog or something. Right. We've all we've all seen Can't Hardly Wait. (laughs) Um, So, again, that it, you know, that doesn't change the fact that you enjoy the song, that you liked it, that you as an audience member put your own meaning on top of it. This is what happens with everything that gets written and everything that gets put out. So a big school of thought says. That's all that matters. Once an author releases their piece, their painting, their sculpture, their movie, whatever, it's out there and there's nothing either, there's nothing they can do about it, about how people receive it. And there's nothing that, um, and there's no way for the people to know what he originally meant. Because even if you walk right up to the author and say, did you mean to do this? Or what did you mean when you did this? Their answer could be a lie. Their answer could be not what they intended. You know, I think a big example of this is, for example, when uh, we talk about Lucas changing the original trilogy. Right. Clearly, as a young man, there were things that he intended for this thing to have. And sometimes it seemed that as an older man, 
he's gone back and rethought some of those things. He's thought to himself, you know, this doesn't really play out the way I want it. So I'm going to change it. And there's some amount of backlash for that because the audience has already put their own meaning to their work. Mm -hmm. And it causes a lot of strain when the author's uh, reported intent clashes with the reception that the work has. And is that kind of what's happening here in this case? To a certain degree. There's a little more to it here yeah. too, because yeah. people haven't seen the work. People right, aren't, exactly. You know, people aren't upset about the work itself, but it's also kind of a, a quagmire because we're not just talking about, you know, Dave Sims said that whatever, you know, this is terrible and women are awful and bad. That is one thing. You know, if you, for instance, read, uh, Frank Knight's All Star Batman or Frank Miller's, uh, All Star Dark Knight Batman, whatever that is. You have that whole sequence where, for some reason, the Black Canary decides to have sex with Batman with their masks on. And you go through that. I didn't care for that as a Black Canary fan. Mm -hmm. And I went, oh, my Mm -hmm. God, this is really awful. But I didn't necessarily look at that as having a real world expectation. I don't believe that Frank Miller believes that, you know, you can go and tell a woman, I have a mask and she'll come make love to you. But what we're talking about here is a little bit more complicated in that. Card hasn't said anything. DC hasn't said anything about what the story is necessarily going to be about. People are responding specifically to the statements that the author has made. Right, right, in the past. And those Mm -hmm. statements seem to be, right, but the statements seem to be stating that a certain part of the, you know, the people who would buy a Superman Mm -hmm. comic or at least interested in DC comics shouldn't have the same rights, shouldn't have the same abilities, aren't, you know, aren't equal members of society or aren't normal people right there. You've got an issue because you're telling people you're not right. Of course, people are going to respond poorly. Of course, people are going to protest. Of course, people are going to be upset regardless of whether this Superman book is wonderful. People are always going to be upset that it got printed because the author of the book made a remark that personally affects and offends them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's more than just saying the artist, you know, we can't, we can't necessarily judge the work. And the artist may not bring, he may not have Superman say homosexuals should not marry. In fact, I, I would say that it's almost 100% certain oh, yeah, that yeah. that will not happen right. in oh, yeah. this book. But the fact that he said it is going to make people not read the book regardless of what it is or what it's about. Let me ask you a question. And they do they do have that right. That's legit. L- let me ask you a hypothetical question. Totally hypothetical. By oh, no I, means is this I don't have real. It. No means is this fact. We're just playing what ifs. What if, I don't know, let's call him Cac Jerby. Okay, that's this, this guy's name, Cac Jerby. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. artist. Uh, has a line, uh, a pedigree of titles that are, you know, mile long, create some beloved characters, created some beloved whatever throughout uh, Larvel publishing uh, history, right? And so this person has died. After he's died, it comes out that this person was anti-fill-in-the-blank, does that then change the nature of the work and the person? 
if Larvel Publishing was going to go and, and reprint some of his greatest stories uh, of this artist. We, I'm just we asking that, that hypothetical. We talk occasionally Uh-oh, about value okay. of comics. Okay. Am I there? Am no, I no, 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 no. I, I thought I something else happened. Sorry. Everything's fine. Okay. We talk occasionally about value of comics in monetary terms. And uh, we'll say, for instance, Iron Man 128, the first issue of the Demon in a Bottle storyline, mm-hmm. according to the guide, will run you $25. Sure. When I say, what is that story worth? Well, you can say it's worth $25, but you can also say it's the story that really made Iron Man a real person. Mm-hmm. It gave Tony Stark dimension and depth. It made him something different. Let's say, for instance, I'm a reader of Cac Jerby's work on the Goo Nods. And right. I really loved his work on the Gunads, especially that part with Sark died. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. when I find out that Jack or Cack Jerby hated rubber heads. Well, I wasn't going to go that far. I just said anti-blank. Now you're putting rubber heads in this. Well, Gosh. okay, blank. He hates blanks. I love blanks. I Maybe I am a blank. Uh-huh. And I look at that and I'm like, well, I can never read that Gunads story again. And Larval comics and C&D comics, I'm not going to read anything that they put out that, you know, is indicative of this creator's work. Mm-hmm. That is perfectly valid for mm-hmm. me as a reader because okay. that emotional response that we talk about, we can never know what that artist meant. Right. But we can and do have visceral emotional reactions to things. And sometimes something that you should love, like Kill Bill Volume 2 didn't appeal to you because you didn't want to see this character's eye cut out and squished beneath the foot of another character. It's kind of that same thing. If that is really, if that's something that triggers for you, or if that's something that offends you, if that's something where you go, I can never look at this character, this writer the same way again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say that that is a legitimate response. I think we've all had that response a time or two. Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. totally. I've, I've been there a time or two where I have known someone or, um, well, I, I, good case. There's someone that I knew, someone that I believed in, someone that I championed for a long time. And then someone came to me with a very serious issue regarding this person that totally changed my view of that person from that point forward. And I could no longer be that champion, that supporter, that fan of uh, that person. And I can't go into detail because the person's still alive, but when that person dies, I'll let you know about it. Um, But no, I understand where you're coming from on that. That can be retroactive. Sure can. That can take something that you used to love and color it with hatred. I mean, I will never play Grand Theft Auto 3 without... Uh, again, for reasons which are completely meaningless and personal. But that doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily universal. It doesn't necessarily carry to Grand Theft Auto Mm 4 or Grand Theft Auto Vice City. But it's still always going to be there, and it's always going to be problematic for me. And if it were something where that, you know, package of a comic was saying to me or felt like the author was saying to me, this is you are not good or that the author believed you are lesser or you are wrong or whatever you want to say about it. Yeah. I could be able to read that book without thinking this guy hated me and people like me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that can be an issue. And that's a very, that's a very real and a very valid sure. response to something. Sure. I can totally see that. And I can totally see, and uh, you know, I, 
I'm just throwing these questions out there to start a conversation and let people react and share their thoughts. Um, like I said, yeah. I don't agree with anything that he would say in regards to gay marriage or anyone who's homosexual. I've got friends who are gay. I've got people who have gone through and and have been married, uh, same-sex couples. You know, I have a strong belief that um, uh, same-sex couples should be afforded the same rights as a married couple. I mean, you know, all these kinds of things. But will I still read this book? Probably not. You know, when it all comes down to it, I'm probably not going to read this, not because of the person, but just because of the outlet and the character, you know, more than anything. Mm-hmm. But I can totally appreciate everyone's Which standpoint of view. The sum of my best friend's argument again. I can never remember. <laughs> uh, this, uh, this, this would be a good opportunity to be like, I am not reading this book because I completely oppose the stance, but mostly I'm just not reading this book because I don't care. Yeah. 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 Like uh, about mm-hmm. the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to, you have to think about from DC's perspective: is all publicity good publicity? Could this not be something where people saying yes, we 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 don't like Orson Scott Card and we don't want this? I mean, I wouldn't necessarily champion it, but the publisher may be looking at this the same way as you know Marvel's "Let's Kill the Human Torch" thing is. People are talking about the book. Are people going to buy the book? Is this something that we need to address? Well, I don't, and, and that's and, kind and of economically. A, I don't. I think taking him off the book would be a huge hit because I feel if if he's still on it when the conversation still going, people are going to buy it just because of that. And if they take him off, then people probably don't realize that there's a new digital only Superman series out anymore. Rodrigo, what were you going to say? Um, I think that uh, this was probably not uh, a calculated move. I don't think that DC Comics said, aha, Arson Scott Card's got some heat right now. Let's get him on a book. I think this was probably a while in the making because if it were the case, they would not have put, it on, put him on Superman. Um, and granted, this is digital Superman off over there. But still, they wouldn't have given him Superman if he was controversial. Mm. But why a digital version only first? I mean, if if there wasn't the controversy with his name, he would have been all over the action comics the minute Grant Morrison stepped well, off, right? Well, this is clearly stunt casting. Yeah, that's I what. Mean, Orson's that's got the part that is a is a known a known issue and yeah, a known yeah. quantity, right? Well, maybe, this is, was, maybe this is maybe this is maybe this is that thing. weird maybe this is the calculated move where let's get a name let's get somebody that could cause some controversy so that we can pump up a digital sales and make people aware of a digital version of the comic book I would hate you to know, think that be, DC is that way think, but yeah, you'd bean, think that bean counters kind of work that way at times well, I, I don't I, think the controversy was part of it but I think Orson Scott Card bringing the buzz was the intention this is, you know, some a well-known science fiction guy. And Ender's Game is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huge. A big deal. You know, like the guy who wrote Ender's Game is going to write Superman. That is clearly their intent here. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think that they thought, let's start some controversy because of what he believes. I think they thought, let's spike some sales by stunt casting and saying, the guy who wrote Ender's Game is now writing Superman. Woohoo. Yeah. No. I, I interrupted Rodrigo. Well, my I'm like super laggy, I think. So it's it's easy. It's easy to interrupt me nowadays. That's true. Um 
But uh, I, I think if you think about previous stunt casting things is like, what are the books that they gave to, say, Kevin Smith? And possibly it could be because those were the books that he wanted to write. But, mm-hmm. you know, what, Green Arrow? And Batman. Daredevil. Batman. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they started, they didn't start him off with Batman, did they? Uh, no, for DC, with, uh, he did Daredevil. Green Arrow. Yeah. He did Green Arrow first. So but when, when they hired Straczynski away from Marvel, they handed him Superman and Wonder Woman. Yeah, right. Right, right off but the Straczynski bat. Straczynski is a comic book guy, isn't he? I mean, and he kind of always has been. Well, he was the Babylon Five guy when he started uh, so writing that, comics. Well, my what the point that I was getting at is that they a lot of the time they will have a big draw name, but they will attach them to a second string book. So yes, right. they're getting. Ender's Game Man to um, to write Superman. They're not going to put him on action comics. They're going to put him on the digital Superman. And then right. if people dig it, they're going to move him to uh, Teen Titans and then to the real Superman. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he's going to be doing too much more after this. I don't know. I mean, this is the thing, and this is the problem that I have with the whole thing. I believe that they are well within their rights and justified Absolutely. to well oh, sure. and go off on DC. Sure. And I believe that DC is well within their rights as a publisher to respond or not respond as necessary. But I don't necessarily think that this is going to be the end of stunt casting. Even the oh, end no, of stunt no. casting Orson Scott Card because I feel like – with the comic industry doing what the comic industry is doing, they are moving to the next big thing as quickly as the old next big thing is gone. And I think that if this continues to be an issue, if DC chooses to pull him off Superman, that doesn't mean that they won't give him another assignment. And if DC chooses not to pull him off Superman, that doesn't necessarily mean that this Superman book won't be somehow, you know, a decent seller. So my worry is, is well, it's not even a worry. My my thought process on this is it may not be the end of Orson Scott Card. It may actually be the beginning of a whole new comic book gig for Orson Scott Card, for good or ill, you know? And you have to remember that this isn't a normal release schedule of a book. It's not like he's on Superman for two months. Right. He's going to be on Superman for two, two weeks. weeks. Yeah. That's it. It's going to be equivalent of, what, a 40 blink. 40 digital pages which is less than a full issue right of superman right which well. which which again uh, gives you that uh, that clear stunt cast i mean right whether you believe that it's because of the heat or whether you believe that it's just because he's a prominent sci-fi writer um either way it was stunt casting right mm-hmm. oh yeah. Um, yeah yeah the the question here is i mean and, and the I, I think something that some people will bring up is that it doesn't matter if he's there for two issues, a single issue or a backup story in a book that's getting canceled next week. You know, no matter what, when you hire Orson Scott card, all of this stuff is attached to him. Mm -hmm. No matter what, even if you hire him to clean your toilets, all this stuff is going to follow him there wherever he goes. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we shared our thoughts, at least started the conversation. Listeners, you can ever do head over to Majorspoilers.com and you can finish and continue the conversation over there as well. Um, before we get out of here real quick, John Goschalk uh, wrote in and said, the future Han Solo, could it maybe be Joseph Gordon-Levitt? 
Why are we talking like this? As though we were 18? There were a lot of question marks in the sentence. Okay. Cool. <laughs> I thought maybe we just wanted to go to the food court at Sabaros. I could I could go for some Sabaros. That would be good. Zach, reaction? Um, no. I don't. Do I, what, was, what's, what should I be answering? Do I think he will or would be right fit? Yes, either or. No, I don't think he will. Mm, it could probably work if he was. Matthew? He, he, did, a, he did a nice Bruce Willis. Yeah. Matthew? Mm, I think right now he's got the uh, geek street cred to pull it off. Having been, you know, Cobra Commander and the new Batman. Oh, yeah, I forgot he was Cobra Commander. Do I think oh, it's a yeah. good fit? Do I think it's a good fit? I have a problem with the concept of young Han Solo. So. How old is Han Solo supposed to be in the real movie? I still have trouble. Trilogy? Any ideas? Somewhere in that age. In age Star Wars, range. I pegged him. 35. I pegged him for about 35. Yeah, okay, I'd see that. You know, you figure yeah. he's, he's been around the block a time or two. Isn't that, that's almost, about how old almost uh, Harrison Ford was in 1977. Mm-hmm. Gordon's only, he's in his 30s. Rodrigo? So I don't necessarily know if I want to read Teen Han. Okay. It's funny because uh, every time they're like, you say, like when you say the next Han Solo, the, the, the thing I think about is today's Han Solo. And then that, uh, the yeah, exactly. The, the little electronic riff from. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and then Carrie Von Eric comes to the ring. Yes. Um, I honestly, I would rather see uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in a Star Wars movie as his own character. Yeah, there you um, go. Yeah. I, I, if I'm, if I'm gonna stand somewhere in the speculation, or I guess the the hope and prayer uh, aspect of the new Star Wars movies. I really hope for brand new stories with brand new characters. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I'm hoping for. So if they do attach Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I hope that they give him his own character. And that goes for any actor attached to him. Uh, just for reference, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is about three or four years younger than Harrison Ford was when Star Wars came out. That's it. So he's not really... He be, they, look at he the be brain much, on he, Zach. He wouldn't be that much younger of a Harrison Ford. But he looks young. He's no, one he, of those he, oh, he looks, looks a lot young. younger than Harrison Ford yeah. does in that movie. Just like you don't Justin look like you should Bieber. be 21. Yeah, that's true. Shut no, your mouth. Shut up. Yeah, Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift will be in the next. Justin uh, Bieber, no. First of all, Justin Bieber would play young Luke Skywalker. He yeah. could. Oh uh, yeah, he probably could. And Selena Gomez as Leia. <laughs> oh, they, Disney! They totally broke. They're up, all Matthew. from the. To- they're all. Yeah. Jeez. Well, <laughs> we, that's oh my god! It all makes sense now. Disney bought the rights to Star Wars to get them back together. Exactly. Uh, Mon Mothma will be played by by Miley Cyrus. Yeah. And uh, uh, Darth conspiracy Vader will everywhere be played you by the kid from iCarly. Get it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for participating. Again, head over to Majorspoilers.com. Check out the comment section. Share your thoughts. Share your ideas. If you want to get on the ground floor now. Consider making a $5 a month recurring donation or up it up to a $10 a month recurring donation. Um, over the last couple of weeks, people have been canceling their 2 and $5 a month and jumping up to that $10 a month. More on that later on the website. Be on the lookout for it. Thank you so much, everyone. Next time on the Major Spoilers Podcast, I believe we will be looking at some little blue people action. The Smurfs 
on the Major Spoilers Podcast. If I had the X-ray vision of a Superman, I could save some bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the rack. And although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, he'd make me wait out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Away. If I was hulking green or gray, I could bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little me would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would you bag and board your comics with such huge hands? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler, yeah, 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 yeah. What a major spoiler. Major Spoilers is copyright 2013.